Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday afternoon, Arab Shabbos, and now that I have a few minutes, I think I'm going to do one more uh, talk that I had planned in connection with the uh, with the catalog, with the Gnosim catalog. As I said before, that uh, Mishpacha Stefanski is uh, going to have the auction next week. I'm uh, looking through it, and for me, I'm interested in items of historical interest, obviously. You know, they capture my attention, and one of them was uh, the Leezer Bible, which uh, most people don't know about. It's that golden oldie, so to speak. And a very interesting chapter in American Jewish history, Americana from the uh, Frum angle, uh, but a very complex uh, story. And I wanted to say a few words about it. I, From time to time, I've thought of, uh, what do you call it, uh, doing Isaac Leezer. I never did, but now I think I will. Uh, because there, it's one of the things that's being auctioned off, which is interesting, what they call Chumash Torah Salakim, Philadelphia, 1845, uh, the Chumash part. And here you have a golden only for American Judaism. As I said before, uh, the history of American Jewry is, uh, goes in stages. And the person we're talking about today was Yitzhak Leezer, Isaac Leezer, Leezer is Yekish for Eliezer, Leezer, Leezer, you know. Um, was a very interesting, to my mind, tragic figure in uh, the history of American Judaism in the 1800s. Um, fought for a good cause, but lost. So, if you go back to the beginning, at the time of the 13 colonies, and George Washington afterwards, as I've said before, what you had in America were Sephardic uh, Kehillahs, even though most of the members were Yekish, or not of Sephardic background. So, that's the way it unfolded. I spoke about it a couple weeks ago. New York, Newport, Philly, um, Richmond, Savannah, Charleston, these kind of places had actual synagogues. And in the whole country at the time of George Washington was only 2,500 Jews. And so whatever Yiddishkeit went along in those places consisted of these congregations, which the original founders were Spanish-Portuguese, although they were very tiny in number, and most of the people who moved in and settled there were actually from Germany or Holland or places like that. But as they said before, Kama Kama Botley, when they would arrive in America, they would join the existing synagogue, because it wasn't like a ton of them moved here once. It was always a drip, a drip, a drip there. A guy or a family moved to New York, Another guy for another time on a different occasion moved to Charleston. Another guy, maybe a family moved to Philly. Like that. So since it didn't come in a big wave, you didn't get a collection of all these immigrants starting their own Stiebler show. But they joined what was ever there. So that means that the formal character of Judaism in the time of George Washington and John Adams and Jefferson and all that, early 1800s, was Spanish-Portuguese. Sephardic, uh, with the pronunciation, all the rest of it, and um, there were no Rabbanim, but rather, he had a Chazan. And the job of the Chazan was to lead the services. If I remember correctly, I don't even think they had davening during the weekday, just on Shabbos and Yantuf. Unless I'm sure if somebody had a yard side, I know that was a big deal. But typically not. And that was America at that time. The Chazad is paid by the community to literally uh, daven the whole thing on behalf of everybody. In other words, recite the entire davening out loud, which is the Sephardic way, as far as the people in the shul, if you knew, you joined them, but you didn't know, you just sat there. And the form of the synagogues usually looked like a church because America was such a Protestant area, you know, the Jews kind of like picked that up. 
And that's how it worked out. Now, um, how firm were these people? Here you have to distinguish between daily practice and official beliefs. In terms of daily practice, things are pretty schwach. You can imagine what Kashrus and Taras Mishpacha was back in those days. Was there even a mikvah? I know there was one in them. I think every one of the shuls had a mikvah. I don't know how much it was used. Kashrus, better not to look. You know what I mean? Uh, let's put it this way. They did cut their neck, but that's it. <laughs> they didn't know all these rules. Except a few cases when they did. And the Chazan, hopefully, was more learned than the others. Chinuch, in any kind of a serious sense, did not exist. It's very important to understand that. You might have a person who immigrated back from the old country, here and there, here and there, as I said before, who had some kind of yeshiva background, therefore would be quite learned compared to everybody else. There are a number of cases of that. Believe it or not, in early Philly, uh, there was a big fight in the congregation. I forget. The guy who was on the left was a Telzer. I'm serious. Notice he was an immigrant to Philadelphia in the 1700s from Tells, the town of Tells. This is, of course, 100 years before there was a yeshiva there. I'm just saying, you ended up all kind of weirdos in these communities. But there weren't many. And if there were 2,500 at a time in George Washington, probably by 1820 or thereabouts, there were probably double that. 5,000 altogether in the whole America. And if I'm wrong, 6,000. You see what I'm saying? Very small numbers. Just consider the number 6,000 Jews in all of the USA, which at that time went up to the Mississippi River or a little beyond. That's a tiny. So to live in a Jew is to be a fish in a foreign sea. That's how it goes. You know, fish in a foreign sea. Now, these communities, since they didn't have Rabbanim, were running the Spanish-Portuguese style, in which they had a board of directors and had junta, and they're the little Hitlers, you understand? They run everything, and they tell everybody what to do, as far as the synagogue is concerned. Outside the shul, it's a free country, separation of church and state. Nobody can make anybody do anything. But in, in, within the synagogue, they call the rules. Officially, everybody was Orthodox. I would even say that the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, by tradition, by tradition, you know, they run away from the Inquisition and all that, they were committed formally to what you and I would call Orthodox theology. Yeah? The Torah is true. The Talmud, whatever he personally thought was true. You have to keep all the misses. God commanded them. What we do in real life is a difference, but, you know, that's formally, they were comfortable dead. And since there were so few Jews in America at that time, relatively speaking, there wasn't a lot of anti-Semitism. If you were a Jew, the area I'm talking about, you made a little money, you could join the local, you know, Masons and be part of society. You even join a country club, as we would say today. There's only one Jew here, too, anyway. It wasn't a problem. When more came, then came the anti-Semitism. All right, keep that in mind. That's the background for our hero today, Isaac Leeser, Yitzchak Leeser, who was born in Germany in 1806 and died in 1868, so he was only 62 when he died. And he grew up in Germany, in other words, during the Napoleon era. He was orphaned and so forth. The key point is he had a very firm grandmother. So, you know, old German, Dutch style. That obviously was much beyond him. And he went a few years, not much, to what you and I would call a from high school. One of the early, how should I put it, modern Orthodox rabbis, I mean that in a good way, in Germany was a, uh, Abraham Sutro, Abraham Sutro, uh, who was a from guy. If you take the trouble to go online, and look at his picture. Woo! Real from guy. But he was some... And he learned in Prague and all that. But he had... He was growing up in the Napoleonic era. So notice... And he was in Germany. So you had to modernize to one degree or another. You had to. And... By the standards of Orthodox Rabbi, you know, he was a uh, an educated person. He was actually a government-appointed district rabbi. So notice he could speak German. He knew he had a basic secular education. And when he started what what we would call today a kind of a machina or something like that, high school, 
he meant the Lashem Shamayim. And I don't know what the boys learned over there, they, but they learned, you know, certainly they read Hebrew texts. Um, you know, Chumash, Tanakh to some degree, Mishnah. I doubt if they did Gemara, maybe I'm wrong. Our hero went there for a couple of years. But at the age of 17, he left and moved to America. So that the total Chinuch education he had in a formal school was a couple of years. In America, that makes you the Vilna Gong. That's the point I want to get across. He moved to America when he was 17. So if he's born in 1806, then he moved to America in what, 1823? 24, something like that. And um, the reason he moved over here is because he had an uncle, um, mother's brother, or maybe it was a cousin or something, whose name was Zalman Rhine. And he was uh, he was a, a businessman in Richmond. So this is a tiny Jewish community of Virginia, tiny Jewish community of Richmond. And by the way, this guy, Zalman Rhine, it was a from guy. Uh, and he also, in addition to being a businessman, was the Chazan in, in, in Richmond. So in other words, he had a shul. Not big, of course. It's run like all the other shuls, Spanish, Portuguese style, whatever the people themselves are. The tafilot are said out loud by the Chazan. And he's, of course, the Baal Kore and the whole nine yards. And that's the, what Judaism consists of, primarily. Some, Zalman Ryan, you know, knew a little bit, you know. What you have to understand is in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. If you knew how to read Hebrew without Nakudos, you're already a macher. If you know how to re actually read a sefer of some kind or another, not a heavy one, you were like the Vilna Gaon, you know? <laughs> you see? It's important to understand that. The ignorance was unbelievable. And our hero moved there to get a job. The economy in America, at that time, it was just rebounding from the Great Depression. If you know your American history, it was a big depression in, in Monroe's second uh, term. And I'm sorry, in the first term. And um, what do you call it? It was a terrible depression. But those are the old days of boom and bust. Whoever went bankrupt went bankrupt. Within a few years, the economy was rolling again. And there's our hero, Isaac Leeser, in Richmond. This guy, Zalman Rung, by the way, is actually buried in Baltimore, Maryland. If you go downtown to a very bad neighborhood, it's interesting, there's a small sort of fenced-in uh, uh, cemetery, Jewish cemetery, from the early 1800s. And there's a number of people in there. The people in the neighborhood, uh, again, it's a bad part of town, don't even know what it is over there. I'm, I'm a Cohen, but I can look in and see from the outside. It's right across where they had big riots a couple years ago, across the street. And you can see Zalman Ryan, these other guys, the tombstone's all in English. It just says Zalman Ryan and maybe the dates or something like that. Nothing Hebrew. You couldn't find a stonemason in those days who could do something in Hebrew. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, they called the Cones and the Eddings. Those were the big families at that time in Baltimore. What was there? 10, 15 families. Jewish all together. Like that. Now, our hero moved to, to uh, Richmond and based on the fact that he had partially a high school education from Germany. What I mean by that is what we call a day school education. And he was a good student. He was like a big scholar, big Tom McCaughlin compared to these other people over there. And his uncle said, I'll teach you to be a Chazan. We're from Germany, but the way they do in America is Spanish Portuguese. And so he showed him the pronunciation and the, the Nigunim and the whole business of being Spanish-Portuguese uh, Baltfilla. And eventually that's what happened. It became that. Now, it's famous that um, he was a good reader and things like that. Intellectually very curious. At that time, somebody had written um, an anti-Semitic article in, in the British press. It was reprinted in America, and he wrote a reply to it. Whatever they're saying against the Jews is all wrong. And he expressed himself very sincerely. I mean, that's who he was. He was 
the opposite of a of a, you know sneaky or phony. He very sincere. It comes across in everything he did. Uh, maybe a little too much so. And the fact that you had in the community somebody could who could write an articulate response to an anti-Semitic attack, whereas usually even Ariyamazeb, people don't know, you know, how to respond well to Judaism. I'm not talking about the stupid comments on Yeshiva World or something like that, us and I, you know, idiot comments. I'm talking about something intelligent, you know. So, and it was published as a booklet and so forth. So this made all the other American Jews, who were business people primarily, they weren't articulate, you know, defenders of Judaism and this, that, and the other. And the fact you had a guy over here who was able to do it made him like a shtickle hero among the five or 6,000 Jews total in the United States of America. And the long and the short of it is he was offered a shtella in Philly at the synagogue there. There was one. Spanish, Portuguese, the mikveh Israel. Which is still there. And he took it. And he stayed in Philadelphia for the rest of his life. And because of him, Philly became something of a Jewish capital. Somewhere along the line, I forget exactly what, he got like smallpox or something. Which in those days, you know, you know, really in, in the 1800s, that's when you should have worn a mask. Because every summer, Magefas broke out. And the ships were going back and forth. There was no such thing as public health. And every time a ship came from Europe, the rats and the mice got off also, spreading the diseases, whatever had over there. It was pretty bad. And I don't remember all the details, because he must have had a smallpox inoculation. You'd think inoculation, but whatever. He had a bad case. He survived. But they say his face was so pockmarked and disfigured, it killed his self-esteem. And because of that, he never had the guts to ask a girl to marry him. Uh, that's part of who he was. Uh, which is Which is sad. Uh, no, I got interrupted. It's uh, it's a shame. To my mind, that's what happened. You know, he had a bad case of lack of self-confidence, even though he shouldn't have. And believe you me, guys were in short supply for Jewish girls at that time. Just in the other way around also. The whole country was a small number of Jews. Nebuch, that's what happened. And at the age of uh, 18, at the age of 1830, he was 24 years old. He got this job to be the Chazan in Philly, and he thought it's going to be the beginning of a good career. He didn't realize he's going to deal with a bunch of a little Hitlers over there. And one minute, um, sorry about that. But uh, by that I mean, you know, the president should the vice president consider themselves like they're the employer, the rabbis, or the chazan is definitely nothing but a lowly employee, and he can't make boo unless they give him written permission. And any deviation, you could get fired, and they give you a lousy salary. And every time you had to ask for a raise, and most nine out of ten times they said no, and they treated you like dirt, really. You see what I'm saying? That wasn't for a guy like him. But on the other hand, what are you going to do? This was his passion. He liked being a chazan, but he really, really would have wanted to be a rabbi. Just circumstances made it that he never had yeshiva education. It's just a certain personal tragedy. He had, the, he had the personality to be a rabbi, meaning a full clergy person, and a rabbi of the 19th century type, but it didn't work out. And he had to be this employee, and basically for 20 years, he was quarreling with the with, with the Balabatim, and, and especially the Machers in the Shul. You know how it goes in these things. Part of the shul sides with you. Part of the shul goes against you. And he already was saying at that time, we have to introduce reforms and changes into the current state of Judaism. Now, he did not mean non-from changes and reforms. He actually meant from changes and reforms. Things that will enhance the synagogue service. Because the Spanish-Portuguese system was so staid and rigid and unchanging that it was a turnoff to the young generation. He said, for example, why don't we do what the Christians do, which is they have a sermon. But the Spanish-Portuguese service was so 
um, traditional that it dated back from a time when there were no sermons, and therefore you don't do sermons. Now, listen, my father didn't do it, my grandfather didn't do it, so we don't do it. But he said, listen, people are coming to Shul, especially the thoughtful people, the young people, they want to hear a vart. They want to hear something more than the than the simple repetition of the prayers. I mean, people like to hear the repetition of prayers because it's like, you know, emotionally, it's the same thing you heard last time, before that, and before that. It's familiar territory. It's like the shul as a tiny oasis of Judaism. That all of it's true, but it can be a lot more. Plus, he must have seen that in the absence of Torah scholarship, all the rest of it, everybody became very money-oriented. You know, saying? Very materialistic. That's what happens. In the America of that time, like the America today, in a lot of cases, the only thing they measured you by was the money. And, you know, he said Judaism is better than that. And he looked around. I'm sure he visited churches to check them out. And he saw that they have better services and the sermons are very good and so forth. But in the Spanish-Portuguese show, anytime he wants to burp, you got to write a written petition to the board of directors. They have to debate it. And nine out of ten times they say no. So every once in a while, he was allowed to give a, a drasha. Now, here we're dealing with 19th century sermons. <clears throat> in traditional Judaism, there, there weren't sermons, I mean, in the ancient times there were, but there weren't sermons like in the Middle Ages, early modern period, except once in a while. You know, a couple Shabbos a year, here and there. The form of the drushas, well, in Europe, was usually based on uh, biblical and Talmudical literature, and you're, you know, twisting them in a certain way, you know, to, 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 to make a point. That was the aesthetic of it. You take a familiar Gemara and you, and you apply it in different, unusual ways. You see? Um, if you're Jonas and Aveshitz or a lot of these other guys, you can mamish, you know, do wonders with it. And the key point was it shared a certain scholarship. But... In the time I'm talking about, which is the late 17, especially 1800s, especially with your totally acculturated Jews, they wanted to hear like a Gaisha type sermon. That's what they wanted to hear. I forget the term the historians use, Ofenbarunga, you know, it's a more enlightening, moralistic. So, you know, the importance of being honest, the importance of being good, uh, kind, you know, what we would consider to be glittering generalities. This is the very early Victorian era. I mean, that, that was really hot stuff. You read these sermons today, they look like junk. But in, back in then, it wasn't looked at that way. And he became associated with that concept. So here's a guy who has a shul, the chazan in the shul, no rabbi, in the country, for 20 years, but he doesn't really like his job. And he's got a lot of energy and ideas, and the Philistines, who were the board of directors, never give him the time of day. And so, very interestingly, he finds other ways to channel his energies to try to do something positive for Yiddishkeit by making an end run around the idiots who are the officers of the synagogue. Which means you have to operate outside the framework of the synagogue. Now, right off the bat, he realized that the problem you have in America is zero chinuch. I mean, zero chinuch. The trouble is, he was no great Talmud Chacham. By the standards of America at that time, he was. But he himself never claimed to be a Talmud Chacham and always was self-deprecating. And I know many of his lighter, uh, letters and essays in his newspaper, he always said, I'm not a rabbi, and I would pretend to be a rabbi. If you have a Shiloh, I'll send it to a real rabbi. You know, he was not a phony at all. But, yosish. I think that would characterize him. And so, it's very interesting. He got together with some ladies, because in the 19th century, the women are supposed to be the main people of, of, of religion. That's the Gaisha model. The um, the Christian um, uh, gentlewoman. And there were a few Jews, Jewish women, whose husbands were Philistine businessmen, you know, hard-headed, who wanted to imitate the Christian women and do something for the Jews. To make a long story short, he translated, he tr he. He said, let's copy what, this is sad, let's copy what the Christians do, but only in a Jewish way. The Christians have a Sunday school. So let's at least have a Jewish Sunday school. So the children should learn epis. What was the state of the chinuch at that time? 
there were no books. Well, you say all this, teach them Chumash. They couldn't read Hebrew, you see? Not not efficiently. And so what does it mean, you know, to give Chinuch? You have to basically imitate what the Christians are doing in their Sunday schools, but not Christianity, but Jewish. So Christian books for Sunday schools and religion schools were a zillion, a dime a dozen. This was America. This was a Protestant country. What he did, and, what, and and his friend Rebecca Gratz, she also talked and never got married. Um, she was much older than him. Otherwise, they would have been an interesting couple. Um, and uh, some other women in Philadelphia. These are, this is the era where the husband works and the wife does not work. You get it? I mean, running the house is not easy, but the wife doesn't. It's not a two-income situation. That's, you always got to know where things were holding in the social reality at the time. And therefore, in that America, where the wife does not work, um, you have a whole women's life. I remember from my youth, when I was young, you used to have all these ladies' organizations that they have uh, banquets and bazaars and this and that and the other to raise money for the yeshiva, for the day schools. They, they nickel and dimed a lot of stuff. Let me tell you, they built a lot of stuff. But in, I'm talking about, but those were refugees. Those were your East European Jewish women. I'm talking about Western women. Some more high class. And so they said, let's imitate what the Christians are doing. And so they they purchased um, Christian books. I don't, what I'm going to say now is going to surprise you. They were Christian books. So you have Bible stories. So let's put it this way. Adam and Eve is Adam and Eve. I'm taking kids from Jewish families who never heard of Adam and Eve. They never heard of Abraham and Sarah. They never heard of Moses and, and Pharaoh. Not really. So I can get it from a Christian Bible book. You get what I'm saying? In other words, when they talk about the Old Testament, I mean, I realize they're not going like Rashi, but, you know, basically you get the story across. That way my son and my daughter, whoever, at least knows who is Yaakov and, 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 and Rachel. Uh, they know that Aaron was the brother of Moses. You know, stuff like that. So what it means is you buy a Christian Sunday school book and you uh, only read the first half about the Old Testament. The second half you skip. <laughs> you see? Matter of fact, another thing the Protestants were into was they call catechism. Which means you do in, in, in the style of She'ela Uchuba. She'ela Uchuba. You know? And the kids memorize, uh, what shall I say, the questions and answers. And that's how you learn what your religion stands for. It's a very Christian type thing. You know, who do we believe in? The answer is God. Why do we learn God? He created the world. Uh, why did he create the world? I don't know, you know, for goodness. Uh, what does God say should happen, uh, you know, to a killer? Oh, he should be killed. I don't know, you know, stuff like that. Okay? Um, what are you supposed to do with your mother and father? Honor them and, you know, honor your mother and father. You know, that, that kind of business. Um, they would have Christian ones, and when it says like this, who do we love above all? You know, the Lord, uh, Jesus. So what they would do is they take a, I've seen pictures, you take a pen, you simply draw a line through Jesus. You get what I'm saying? So we love the Lord. The kid can see what the word was. That you, it's not even like they blotted it out. That's how schwach things were. And so he said, listen, it's better than nothing. Otherwise, we grow up with kids who never heard the word of Moshe and Aaron. They never heard that what guy existed. They never heard the Ten Commandments. They don't know what the Ten Commandments are. At least they'll know in English. At least it's Epis. Uh, he, I remember he, 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 and he started translating. He was actually not a bad translator at all. And so I always figured it was a shame. He could have easily translated Hirsch's 19 Letters of Benazir, which Hirsch published in 1836, when our hero was only 30 years old. He was two years older than Hirsch, and they knew each other by correspondence. Um, I would say Isaac Leeser was a, a, a fan of Hirsch from early years on, and he translated a little bit of the book, but not a lot. I think Jews could have benefited a great deal if they would have had an English in this country in the middle years of the 1800s, um, the, the two Hirsch books, uh, what do you call it? The 19 Letters and the Chorev. The Chorev would have been the closest thing you get to a Shulcha to a kiss of Shulchanar, which would bid a milestone in America where they had zero. So here's a guy who's trying to put his energies into Chinuch. 
all those shvacha mices, trying to put his energy into other Jewish, uh, you know, uh, uh, projects, uh, to, uh, to organize the Jews into national Jewish organizations, um, to fight for their political rights of Jews, to defend the Jews to the degree they're able to when they're attacked overseas, like in the Damascus affair. Yeah, he, everything he did was very nice, but it was just shvach. Now, around the time he became the Chazan, a tidal wave of Jewish immigration started in America. Taka from the year 1830, when he was 24 years old, starts the great German-Jewish migration, where over the next 50 years, not all at once, a quarter of a million German Jews came to this country. I'm using the word German Jews in a very wide extent. From Germany, from nearby areas like Holland and Bohemia, and Austria, and even Eastern Germany, which is sort of semi-Polish, whatever the case is, what we would call German Jews, uh, Davka, what you refer to as Yekis, but people from that part of the world, came in huge numbers. Since they came now in huge numbers, there are reasons they're running away from Germany for this reason and that reason. Since they came in huge numbers, pretty darn quick, they said, I ain't joining the Spanish-Portuguese show. Dom's in this weird nusach. He's nuts over here. I want a show like I'm used to back in Germany. And so they began to create dozens and dozens of German uh, synagogues. Ashkenaz style. Um, keep that in mind. So our guy is like, came to America six years or, uh, yeah, before the German-Jewish thing started. To be perfectly honest, it started kind of small in the 1830s and it picked up big steam in the 1840s and 50s. That's what happened. Um, so he was here, you know, before the first guys came. And I would say he, and he spoke German, of course, but he identified more and more with the Jews that were already here. Uh, the Americanized Jews. And he saw that all of a sudden, all over the United States of America, the country such as it was at that time, are starting new Kihilas. I mean, it was exciting. But, you know, these Jews, let me put it this way, who got off the boat from Germany, this was the old America, where it was a capitalist paradise, or perhaps, if you want to call it, it was a capital, capitalist hell. Because there was zero social security, zero unemployment insurance, zero public health benefits. There's no Blue Cross or Blue Shield, nothing. You were on your own baby. If you're Matzliach, you get rich. If you're not Matzliach, heck with you. You can drop dead, and plenty did. And so, the, by and large, the German Jews came here expecting nothing, getting nothing, but throwing themselves totally into work. And many, many of them built up businesses. They became middle-class people, you know, peddlers, then eventually get a store, then eventually you get, a, 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 if you're lucky, you make it into a wholesaler and so on and so forth. So they completely bought into the American system. And um, economically, you know, they, they, they strove to become and did become members of the middle class. Uh, but in order to do that, you've got to be able to work very hard because nobody's giving you anything. And one of the things that happened is that... These Jews in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s moved all over the place. In the north, in the south, in the Midwest, such as it was at that time. In these new areas, this frontier city called Chicago, but down to New Orleans and Texas. It's a very interesting sort of thing. And our hero said, now that there's really starting uh, America as a muckum of Yiddishkeit. So... I, I want to uh, bring some kind of unity and, 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 and common character. And so he started a monthly magazine, let's call it the Jewish Press. Right? The Mishpacha, the, the, the Ami, that kind of thing. Which was a Chiddush. And it was called the Occident, which means the opposite of the Orient. So the Orient is, you know, all the way going to the East. But now, these guys are over in America, which is the Occident. And it was a very interesting newspaper... They came out once a month. He wrote the whole thing. Or just about, anyway, a lot of it. And let me tell you, this became the Makar of whatever Yiddishkeit existed in these 
forgotten places, you know what I mean, in Baton Rouge and in the South Florida. I mean, at that time, and in the Indian country, and in uh, out in Chicago, and all the way up in the, you know, the upper state New York, all over the America that time. And he endeavored to report the news and give his opinions and just make it a Jewish press. And uh, many historians are into this because of him. A lot of it now online, I think. Some of it has been put online. Now, the trouble is, it's hard reading today because it's written in the old Victorian business. And they love prolixity. And when he gave sermons, they're very prolix, long. And, uh, you know, that was a, that's what they liked in the 19th century. Um, I was at a shipping house the other day, uh, Ben Adler, and the kids told me, the father said, best thing, what's better than a 10-minute sermon? A five-minute sermon. You know, that's the, that's the modern way of looking at it. In the old days, if you could speak well or decently, oh, you go for an hour and a half. Imagine a Shabbos morning, my goodness, hour and a half a sermon. And that's just the guys just getting started. <laughs> so our hero was like that. All these uh, preachers were like that at that time, the Christians and the Jews. Now, and use fancy words and so forth and so on. Now, um, this newspaper, The Accident, was the Jewish newspaper. Let's say I lived in Baltimore at that time. And I want to know what's going on as far as Jews are concerned. There's no CNN. There's no internet. Once a month came this newspaper called The Occident. And it had the news. He invited and people sent in anything involving Jews all over the country. He didn't have reporters. He relied on you. If you're living in Baton Rouge and somebody beat up a Jew over there, somebody would write it in and he would put it in the newspaper. And so here I am in Baltimore and I'm finding out what's happening um, all over America and Chutzlars as well. So if there was some persecution of Jews elsewhere and somebody wrote from Europe to tell him about it, uh, he'll put it in there. And so by the, so by the standards of America at that time, uh, this was my, my, my uh, address. This is where I got all my knowledge about Judaism and, and Jewish affairs and what's going on in Judaism. Uh, so this is you know, important. Now, in the course... Now, all this time he's a chazan, but I told you, he doesn't like that job. All, so, you know, to run a newspaper, a monthly, is, is, is not so simple either. It takes up a lot of time. And you had to get advertisers and all the rest of it. If you go online and you see the style, you know, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I mean. Sometimes you see things that are a little weird. I remember, off memory, in 1843, he's reporting something that happened in Maryland. Maryland was a slave state at that time, part of the South. And the old Maryland law was very anti-black. And so it said, in a court case, um, the word of a Negro will not be accepted in court against a white Christian, um, which is a racist business. So you say like this, white Christians, what about a Jew? The Jews protested. Finally, Maryland changed the law. <laughs> A, a Christian or a Jew knows any white man. And so also, I guess, oh, we got progress over here. Yeah, but from the tw 20th century point of view, it's, <laughs> it's still part of the racism. You see, so it tells you the times that people lived in. Now, let me say this. He was very sincere, and anything he could do to push Yiddishkeit, he did. So, when Rabbi Rice um, came, to, who, was, who was a great Talmud Chacham, Moved to America in 1840, and he actually was a great Talmud Chacham. He ended up as a rabbi in Baltimore, the first rabbi in America. Oh, uh, our hero praised him to the sky. Said, we said, now we actually have a poseg, and anything you need, talk to him, and I'm going to go totally by what he says. Matter of fact, I think we should elect him chief rabbi of America. I think we should set up a congregation, a, 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 a union of congregations, and set up some kind of an American... Uh, Grand Kehilla, and this guy should be the chief rabbi in Posek, and, uh, and he should definitely handle all the getting and the condition. You see what I mean? His heart was in the right place. It wasn't going to happen, but his heart was in the right place. In the context of doing what I'm talking about, which is try to push Yiddish and try to push um, uh, Chinuch in the sorry state that it was, so he realized how long can you go on using this Christian stuff. You see? I mean, if a Jew wanted to read the Bible, there was nothing in English. 
except the Christian stuff. And so a Jew would take the King James Bible and the Joyce and read the Old Testament part and skip the New Testament. You see? Now there had been, here the, the catalog is actually wrong, there had been a translation or two in England back in the 1700s. I've seen it myself. Matter of fact, it surprised me because he, it's in Old English, of course, and the old type of English script, and I saw a reference to the Sefer HaChinuch over there, which really blew me away. But be that as it may, it was rare. I think the guy's name was David Levy or something like that. You can, you can look it up. But in America, in Lamaisa Dickaway, here's that family living in Baton Rouge, and the other one's in Galveston, the other one's in Nashville, and here's a couple families in Chattanooga, here's some families in Cincinnati, and here's a, in a new city called Cleveland, and so on and so forth. There are no farm, and if there are, they're really indecipherable. Nobody can read them, uh, especially without the kudos. I mean, really, I'm, I mean that. And so, you know, if you want to, to the degree that somebody wants to be religious and study the story of, uh, you know, King David or something like that, you got to take a Christian Bible. It was shvach business. And see, he undertook to personally translate the Siddur and the, and, and the uh, Tanakh into English for the benefit of the American Jews that are coming, even though they're all Germans, but their children are going to talk English. And his Balabatim were English-speaking. And so he put many years, up, I think put 10, 15 years, into this grand project of translating in English the old Tanakh, first the Chumash, which is what's being sold at the auction, and then the rest of the Tanakh. And I remember the Siddur, first the Spanish-Portuguese Siddur, and then the, uh, the Ashkenaz Siddur. I have in my house... I found somewhere one time, maybe in a giveaway, uh, an old leaser uh, sitter uh, with the English translations. You know, they make fun of it. It ain't bad. And the Chumash also, I haven't seen Chumash in many years. But his Chumash, which is, again, what's being auctioned over here, which he called Taurus el is very interesting as a specimen of what was going on in America at that time. Because here's a guy who was no great Talmud Chacham and never claimed to be. But he, he sees the terrible situation of American Judaism, Jews, and they can't have a Bible of their own with a reliable translation, which is not Christian. And he really mamish with Makayim B'makam Sheni Shishtar Aliyosish. He said, I'll give it the best shot. Because nobody's doing it, and you can't trust you know others to do it for you. And so, what does a guy do if um, he tries, for example, to undertake to translate the Chumash? You have, for example, in front of you the King James Bible, but they're full of all Christian translations. A lot. And a lot of the translations are just wrong uh, from our point of view. They're, they're inaccurate translations. And, you know, uh, just off the top of my head, how do you translate Do you say from the after the day after Shabbos? I and mean, that's not what we say. You see? So, a guy like that really needed to be a Bucky and Rashi uh, Ibn Ezra, Ramban, you know what I mean, that kind of stuff. The Barbanel. And then, it's not easy either, you'd have to sort of pick and choose and decide how to translate all those tricky psukim, of which there are many, more than you think. He couldn't read a Barbanel, you know what I mean? So he had the Moses Mendelssohn Chumash, which I told you before was not unfrom, and Mendelssohn has a in a, a German translation, and our hero knew German, so he could translate from there. He had the Christian Bibles. He was enough of a Jew to know what to skip away from the Christian Bibles. And he didn't care about um, messing with the poetry. Because people say, oh, how can you change the King James? The English is so gavaldic. He said, the heck with that. I'm, I'm interested in the Jewish homage for Jews. You see I want Jews to have in their hands a Chumash of Jews. And he has an introduction where he says, listen, I don't claim to know a lot. I'm just being Mekayim B'Mokam She'inish Yishtar And I rely, I relied on divine spirit, you know, to inspire anybody who does it, L'Shem Shemayim. He said, all I know is I'm doing L'Shem Shemayim. Maybe I got it right. Maybe I got it wrong. I'm giving it my best shot. Nobody else is doing it. And uh, and that's how he produced his, his uh, Chumash which was used by religious Jews for a long, long time. Okay? Um, the non-from didn't like it because he was too from. 
And the conservative and the reform always made fun of him uh, because that's who they were. And eventually they published their own, which is the JPS Jewish Publication Society translation of the Chumash in 1917. And let me tell you something. It's not better. I mean, a little bit here or there. It's not really so great. They built it up. And it was published by Professor Max Margolis from Dropsy College, and he's has four PhDs, and he knows Greek, and blah, 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 which is true. And in some respects, you know, he certainly had the biblical, the academic scholarship to do it. It's not such a great translation. And you know what I'm talking about. Now, that JPS was made to knock out Leezer, and they did. The only time I've seen a Leezer Bible is years ago in the Glen Avenue Shul, the old chairs of Israel, some old yekin must have had it from wherever, and I was downtown once or twice in old shuls downtown Baltimore, which are barely used or hardly used, and I, you can see their Leezer Bible. But I can tell you, for several generations, that's what you gave kids for bar mitzvah present, you know what I mean? That's you gave couples for a wedding present, and so on and so forth. Now, if you think translating the Chumash is hard, tell me about Eov. <laughs> you know, tell me about Mishlei. He eventually wasn't easy, and he didn't have, you know, Mendelssohn only did the uh, Chumash. So he had a hard time, and you got to take your hat off to the guy. And he undertook it, he translated the entire Tanakh, because he said, I want a Jewish Tanakh written by a Jew, or translated by a Jew, and if it's not perfect, it's Jewish, and has a Yiddish spirit to it, which it does, which it does. And you can tell, as I said before, that it's a great sincerity of purpose, I wish I had it in front of me, but I don't. You know, I guess you have to buy it. Um, his intro, in which he speaks very sincerely about the necessity of Jews having their own Bible, and then he's, like I said before, he's giving it his best shot. Um, it's written on fancy paper and all the rest of it, but nevertheless, uh, it had its run, and that's what's being auctioned over here. As I said again, he also translated and published the, the Sitter, I think, I can't remember if he did the mocks of Roshani and Kibber. I can't recall. I don't think so. But to have a good, again, I have a sitter, and believe it or not, I've used him once or twice or three times or whatever. I've seen, I look like the Perky Elvis. It's not a bad translation at all. It's not a bad translation at all. Um, the reformer conservative didn't like him because he was too religious. Um, here's the tragic part. Up till 1840 or 41 or 42, America, American Judaism, was like Gan Eden before the snake showed up. But starting around 1843, these reform rabbis start coming over, one after the other. The main one was Isaac Merwise, and from the very beginning, he was planning to take over, and he succeeded. Every time they tried to do something reform, our hero protested against it. It's not true. By the way, in his introduction to Chumash, he said, let me tell you who I am. I'm Jewish. I believe in this stuff. I believe in the prophecies. You know, Moshe Emes, Mr. Ross Emes, and I don't care what anybody says. I said, it's just an interesting human document. Uh, maybe it's online somewhere. I, I, I don't know. It's just an interesting human document. You know, every Anarchy, so to speak. These reform guys didn't say that. And from the very beginning, they want to change this, that, and the other. Uh, you know, cut this out of the sitter, cut that out of this, we all know. They ran rings around him. Because Isaac Mayer Wise, who, who established his own newspaper or two, was actually a better writer, a uh, much better writer. He was a good polemicist. He knew how to fight dirty. And this Isaac Leeser was not good at. He did not know how to fight dirty. He did not know how to be cynical, what's the right word, sarcastic, uh, Isaac Wise and these other reform rabbis were masters of sarcasm. They really were. I mean, it's, it's just interesting to study their their uh, gewaltige sarcasm, I'm sorry to say. Our hero was a tamavata, you know, Yaakovich Tom Yoshe Like, if they did something, oh, this is wrong, this is against the Torah, and they say, you phony, you, you know, they ran around. And he was popular among the American Jews because of his newspaper, because people knew he's devoting himself to them. And there were a couple of times when he traveled around the country, sometimes the stagecoach and then the beginning of the trains. That's when the train started. And he visited Baton Rouge and, uh, you know, uh, Fidorbin land, Florida, and Georgia and Alabama and the Carolinas, and who knows what, like I say, in Illinois. I mean, he went around. Um, and he would come to these places, 
and they would treat him with Kavad Malachim, and he could give speeches on Judaism and stuff like that. And I'll tell you again, in the land of the blind, the man who knows something is king. He could come and give a speech, those long speeches of yesteryear, and it was an event for them. It's like a rabbi coming, right? And he could really feel in his element because he's not a rabbi, but you know he's he's rabbi-like, you might say. And and I got to give him the credit. You know, whenever he found a real rabbi, first of all, Rabbi Rice, later on, Rabbi Illawi came, I spoke about him before. He said, go to these guys and ask your shilas. They are telling me to you know, that, that's the right way to go. He always said that. He never said rely on me or something like that. Um, and I would also say that because he was a very straightforward guy, so he said that anybody wants to write something about Judaism in my newspaper, I'll publish it. And if somebody writes something for a form, I'll publish it, but then I'll write an article saying why I don't agree with it. And so the, all these reform guys would put in these reform articles, and he... And they were good writers, and he would come and just give a very straightforward, but, you know, like I said, milk to his power of a response, and the net effect was not good. Now, you would never get an Orthodox article in their newspapers without them tearing it up. But he wasn't good at cutting people up. He just wasn't, that's not what his talent was. He was not good at cutting people up. And they knew how to cut him up. I remember he was not married, so he lived in a boarding house with the, uh, with this non-Jewish lady who took care of him. And they said, oh, Yichud, like they're big tzaddikim, you know what I mean? And uh, where does he get kosher food? I bet she's eating trave, what a family. You know, that's what they specialize in, in character assassinations and lies and innuendos. And he was not good at, at it's not who he was. He couldn't respond well. Now, um, therefore, as the 1840s and 50s went by, the reform got bigger and bigger. There was a time when you know, a guy like him said, why don't we all get together and establish a national Jewish organization with a right wing and a left wing, but subject, of course, to everybody accepting basic, you know, Judaism, like the Yud Gimel Ikram of the Rambam. You know, these, and they agree, but they didn't mean it. You know, they, 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 you can't do that with these guys. So he was a guy that ran rings around. And then the Civil War came along. A guy like him, was, again, living in Philadelphia. He'd grown up in the South, in Richmond. He'd gone to many congregations in, in the South. He was against the Civil War. He's not in favor of slavery because he was against slavery. But he was against abolitionists bringing the country to the Civil War. Some people were like that. And so, you know, he was very depressed from the Civil War. And at that, there were certain times in the North when Abraham Lincoln persecuted people disagreed with him with the copperheads and they arrested these people uh, without trial and kept them in concentration camps it's part of American history you know Lincoln sort of suspended the constitution and our hero was always uh, afraid he shouldn't get arrested because he's too sympathetic to the south I don't mean he wanted the confederacy to win he just wanted there shouldn't be a war okay he was loyal to the union uh, and I remember he was afraid He's on a list, and they're going to arrest him. And he went to the mayor of Philadelphia and was crying, don't deport me. And the mayor said, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it was a, You can read up on it. There's a book by uh, Bertrand Corn about the American Jews in the Civil War. And you know, you see the dilemma of those people who are just nicey-nice um, and wanted there should be no war when, when the war raged big time. When the Civil War was over, um, he wanted to set up a yeshiva. And he actually did so. This was the product of many years of working on it. But the yeshiva immediately degenerated because, you know, this reform rabbi said, can I teach there? And that one said, can he teach there? And our hero said, well, as long as you teach traditional stuff, you know, it'll be okay. And he started what was called Maimonides College, or as we'd say today, Yeshiva Rambam. Um, Shiva Rambam. And it didn't go anywhere. Because what you really need to start a yeshiva, you started with a Rosh Hashiva. And there was no such thing in America. And individual rabbis, many of whom were reformed, that is an unhealthy way to try to build up any kind of chinuch. Now again, he meant well, and he taught there, I don't know what, he, what, what subject he knew, you know, homiletics or something like that. Uh, and I've seen the curriculum, which was crazy. He was the constant victim of his own lack 
of deep ideas and higher Torah education. And he was the first person to admit it. And therefore, whatever he pulled off is quite remarkable, but in human terms, not in broad terms. You see that he was a very honest, as I, again and again I keep repeating it, and sincere uh, proponent of Yiddishkeit. He wanted all American Jews should, you know, believe in the Yud Gimelikra and the Rambam, try to keep as much Yiddishkeit as possible, always try to improve on it, uh, try to create in America, you know, uh, logically a set of Kehillahs, organize the Kashrus in this country, organize the Taras and Mishpachanism. He had the right ideas, but as you and I know, this was not a way that Yiddishkeit could be built up in America. The only way, and we're looking with hindsight now, Yiddishkeit could be built up in America is top-down, uh, which is you'd have to have some big uh, Talmud Chacham come over here, be sufficiently charismatic to set up a yeshiva, and so forth and so on. None of that exists in his time. Theoretically, I mean, if I wanted to play what if, you know, now they have these counterfactual games, like what if the Confederacy won the Battle of Gettysburg? So, you know, counterfactually, what they should have done was, already in the 1850s, you could have made a yeshiva in New York. You had Rabbi Rice here, and you had Ilui. Those two guys alone were two great Talmudic Chachamim, and they could have trained an American rabbinate, and it could have been an early version of YU or something like that, you know, but it just wasn't in the cards. They wanted to be pulpit rabbis, and there wasn't money for the institution, although I think he could have gotten it. Um, they, they felt their way forward because he didn't have the sufficient breadth and depth of a higher Torah education to have a strategic view and, uh, you know, see, see uh, broadly. I mean, it's not, it's not his fault. And that's what I mean when I say the life of Isaac Leeser was uh, tragic. Uh, he never married because of his lack of self-confidence business with girls. Uh, he always lived this difficult life. After 20 years, he quit the job as the Chazan, and his own people made a shul for him. In other words, half the shul or whatever broke away and made his own shul, Beth LMS, which I'm sure today must be reform or conservative, I don't know. Uh, so he could give his speeches and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure he figured, he died at 62. I'm sure he figured that, uh, you know, he lived to be 72, 82, and maybe last years of his life, he could pull this uh, yeshiva off, as I say, this uh, Maimonides College. Wasn't going to be, wasn't going to be. And so, his legacy will be his translations, like this Chumash over here. It's like really a, a timepiece. You're holding a, a, a piece of, of Americana. It's not an art scroll, of course, you know, or anything like that. But it is an attempt. It was an attempt. And it was a noble attempt to try to bridge the gap between the complete lack of Hebrew knowledge and Hebrew language knowledge on the one hand, the part of the American Jew, the great majority of the American Jews, and on the other hand, their desire to have that knowledge, which you can only do through translations. Uh, and it must pain you and ache you to know, I'm not really the best bar hockey over here, but you want to know something? Nobody else is doing it, so I'm going to do Malcolm you can't fault him for throwing himself in and giving his best effort, uh, literally his best efforts, to try to advance the cause of Yiddishkeit. And that's what he did. So he's a, he was a noble person, although historically a failure. Historically a failure. It's interesting that he started a lot of things, the Jewish Publication Society and this society and that society. And I've noticed in the last 30 years, 40 years, the conservative claim him as like one of the early founders of conservatives. The Orthodox claimed as one of the early founders of Orthodox. He was an Orthodox. He was a from guy. Don't uh, fool yourself. Um, he would have been in favor of what we would call modern Orthodoxy. But by that I mean like in a Hershian way. You know, in a Hershian way. And believe me, he would have loved it if there, if there would have come here in America somebody like Hirsch, you know, which just doesn't grow on trees, of course, and, you know, and, and started something over here. This is the tragedy of the history of American Judaism. The schools and yeshivas didn't start till the 30s, 40s, 50s of the 20th century. And therefore, what's the expression? The, 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 the cow was already outside the barn. And so the vast majority of American Jews have no shachas to anything. It's a, it's a shame. It's a tragedy. Um, it's a tragedy that did not need to be. But, you know, it, so it's a Greek tragedy, but it's a, a Jewish tragedy. And he's like 
a, a very interesting symbol of this. So this Chumash is Mamash, a timepiece. And I'll tell you again, it's not a bad translation at all. I don't care what they say. And I, I've seen the smirky and snarky comments, Israel Abrams in his book about bike paths and Jewish folkland and others. But uh, that's baloney. It, it's not a bad translation at all. Anyway, my time is up. I wish you all good Shabbos um, once again. Um, this will be in the uh, Gnazim auction, which is next Sunday. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.